Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. For context, we'll read starting in verse 18 again. And let's be reminded that this is the eternal, forever settled word of the Lord, which is able to save our souls. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we want to humble ourselves before you and ask that you would be glorified in the proclamation and in the hearing of your word this morning. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us to hear your word and to be changed by it, to obey you, to love you more, to see you as more glorious, more satisfying than anything else in life. For you are worthy we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are working our way through Romans chapter 8, and the particular section we have been spending time in is this section starting in verse 18, which you could title, From Suffering to Glory. This is the portion of Scripture in Romans 8 where Paul is focusing our attention on the future. He actually gave an example or gives an example in terms of a scale in verse 18 that he wants us to consider, to think on. He says, for I consider, I reckon, I reason or conclude that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Literally, the present sufferings, the sufferings of this time which we understand to be Uh, the time from the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden all the way to the present. That's this present age that is marked by sin and corruption in which we all live. The sufferings of this present time have no weight or weightiness as compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. And we looked last time at verses 19 through 21, really the first half of verse 21, to take some lessons from the creation. And as you remember, the creation that Paul is talking about here does not include the sons of God because he is making a distinction between the created order and the sons of God. The creation he's speaking of here is all the non-rational or the irrational, the non-thinking, non-reasoning part of the created order. So that would include the living creatures, that includes the vegetation, that includes the bodies of water on the earth, all the dry lands, and the skies above, the heavens as far as they go. All of this is the creation that Paul speaks of, and he says that that creation has an earnest expectation. It is literally stretching its neck. It is looking eagerly from the head with anticipation. The analogy that I didn't come up with that I heard from others is that it's like your creation's on its tippy toes, looking out with that kind of earnestness on the horizon to see something of what is coming for us. And what is coming for us is called the revealing of the sons of God in verse 19. That is the unveiling, the apocalypse of the sons of God. We who are clothed in these bodies of flesh right now will one day be revealed for who we really are. And in that day, which is the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, He will send His angels and gather to Himself all His elect 
his precious, his sheep. And he will make a separation at that day between the sheep and the goats, between the wheat and the chaff, between the true believer and the false believer and every other unbeliever. It is the great day of the Lord that will make clear who the sons of God are, and creation is stretching its necks to look for that day because, as we saw, our day of deliverance is directly tied to creation's day of deliverance. When creation sees our day of deliverance come, it knows that its day has also arrived. Today, we are going to look at what the Scripture has to say about this deliverance of the created order and why they're stretching their necks, so to speak, so eagerly to see what is to come. Also, in these verses, we're going to consider some of the groans that Paul describes for us here. In fact, he lays out three groans for us. There are uh, three listed in verses 22 down to verse 27. The groans of creation, the same created order we're describing. The groans of the sons of God and the groan of the Holy Spirit. The groaning of the Holy Spirit. Today, I plan to look at the first two of those groans. And that will really form our outline for today. The first is the groans of creation. And the second is these groans of the sons of God. So let's look at verse 21 together. Actually, verse 20 reading into 21. For the creation was subjected to futility. We saw that that meant that the creation has been uh, lined up under, this is a military term, as soldiers are lined up under the authority of a commanding officer, so it is that the creation has been subjected. That's passive. It didn't want to be subjected. It says not willingly, not of its own will. But it's the same one who subjected it to this futility, this vanity, this inability to fulfill what it was designed to do because of the curse of sin, it is the same one, that is the Lord who subjected it to that state of futility, who will also, or who has also subjected it in hope. He will also deliver the creation from this bondage. And we saw that this is a bondage that mankind brought upon himself and all the created order. It was the disobedience of Adam because he heeded the voice of his wife and she heeded the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of the Lord. They believed the lie rather than the truth and that was the cause of the fall of all of humanity and the curse of sin, including the curse on the ground that is with us to this day where man takes his food from the earth with great toil, with sweat from his brow, and that he ultimately, as the final curse, will be allowed to return to the dust. Well, he will die. Creation is still feeling the effects of that to this day. But here's the hope. Verse 21, because the creation itself also, <clears throat> that is, in addition to our deliverance, the revealing of the sons of God, creation also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption, from this slavery to a condition of corruption, uh, a condition of ruin, of decay. It's, in physics terms, the second law of thermodynamics. It's entropy, that everything in this universe is tending in an ever-increasing way to a state of more and more disorder and not order. Chaos is reigning and not order. And it's creation that has been under that bondage. It's been enslaved to that state and it can't get out but it will one day be delivered from this. This is the Lord's promise. And He says it will be delivered from that condition of bondage into or unto the glorious liberty of the children of God is how the New King James reads. But actually the other translations, the ESV, the English Standard, the NAS, and the LSB are very good here. They're very in line with the Greek, which says this is a deliverance from the bondage of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. And you might say, well, what is that? That sounds like a mouthful, Paul. 
Well, Paul is talking essentially here about the glory that is to be revealed. This glory of the children of God is marked by something in particular. And it's marked by the same thing that our Lord Himself distinguishes Himself by in His glory. There is one attribute in His glory that He exalts and elevates higher than any other attribute that He has revealed. And that is His holiness. He is three times holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That holiness is a separateness in every sense. He is separate from His creation and He is separate from sin. There is no sin in God. He is not the author of sin. He is good fundamentally and all that He does is right. So this glory that is to be revealed in us and also in the creation is a glory that is marked by an absence of sin. A separation, a total separation from sin. This is the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what is it that we will be saved from and that the creation will be saved from? We have to remember this. This is, this is fundamental in our understanding. It's sin that we will be saved from. And you remember, in terms of categories, as we've gone through our study in Romans, we've seen that salvation is spoken of in three tenses. It's spoken of as we have been saved, past tense. That is, we've been justified. We've been declared right with God. He has set aside our sins. He's, in fact, dealt with them completely at the cross of Jesus Christ. And He has made an exchange. He's given us the righteousness of His Son while placing all of our filthy clothes, all of our sin, on the Son. That's called a ju- our justification. And that's a one-time legal declaration that has already happened. Right? We learn that in Romans 3, 4, and 5. That's our past tense salvation. That's already happened to you this morning if you are in Christ. You've been saved. Then he speaks about salvation as present tense. And this is throughout the New Testament. Our salvation is we are being saved now. We are being sanctified. That is, in our practice, in our daily living, we are being set apart more and more from our sin. And then there is the future sense of salvation which is yet to come. And that's exactly what's in view in this section in Romans 8, 18 and following to verse 30. It is the final salvation, the final installment of our salvation which will be revealed, which is we will be delivered finally from sin altogether. So not only from the penalty of sin which happened in our justification, not only from the power of sin which we are experiencing now as we've been given the Spirit's power to walk in newness of life, but also from the presence of sin in our final glorification. Sin will be completely eradicated from us and from the created order. All the effects of sin, all of the vestiges of sin will be removed. That is to say, all of the corruption will be gone. There will not be any more fungus and mildew and mold and rust in the new creation. It's all going away. No more abnormal growths and No more pain, no more sorrow. All of that is going away. The created order is going to experience the glorious freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what is it that this deliverance will look like for the creation? Well, Scripture doesn't give us all the details on the timing of how this happens. It doesn't give us the details on... Uh, the order of events of how all of this will go down exactly, but simply that it will take place. And there is some description of it, and we are to know that. And so I want to explore that with you this morning um, as uh, I ask you to turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3, our call to worship this morning. The first point here is that the current heavens and the earth will pass away. The current heavens and earth will pass away on this great day of the Lord which is coming. And when Peter is writing in chapter 3, he is addressing the unbelievers who scoff at the idea that the Lord is coming in a day of judgment. 
And they say, where is His coming? Where is His coming? Has He ever come? And Peter says that they are willfully ignorant of the fact of the flood, that the Lord wiped out the earth in a great flood that destroyed all of humanity except for eight souls, all of the creatures except for those that were spared in the ark, and all of the creation was buried in water. For this they willfully forget, verse 5, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now look at verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. The current heavens and earth are preserved, that is, they have been laid up or stored up. The, the same Word of God that created all things out of nothing is the same Word of God that decreed the flood that destroyed the entire world at the time of Noah. That same Word is preserving this created order as we know it today and reserving it, that is, keeping it under guard for fire. Not water, but fire this time, until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now notice, there's no mention there of the godly, because the godly will not be swept away in this judgment. We know, as we have discussed before, that the godly will be caught up to meet the Lord. We will be spared as His own Son and saved by His very glory. But the wicked will be swept away in this mighty deluge to come, a deluge of fire. These heavens and earth are reserved for fire. That means that mankind is not going to ultimately destroy this earth because the Lord will not allow it. He has reserved that prerogative for Himself alone. And so he will ensure that the world is preserved to some state, in some state, for this great day when he himself will enact a final judgment upon it. Look at verse 10. He says, I'm sorry, in verse 8, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Beloved, that's the way that he addresses the believers. That's you and me. Don't forget this. The Lord does not exist in the realm of time like we do. With him, a thousand of our years are like a day for him. There, there is nothing for him. So don't think for a moment that when the Lord has not brought His final judgment yet, that this promise has not been fully realized, that He is somehow lazy or dragging His feet or slack concerning His promise. He is not. The reason why He hasn't brought the final judgment yet is because He is long-suffering toward us, toward us. Beloved, He's speaking to the believers He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. That is, any of His own, His elect. Not one shall perish, but all will come to repentance. In other words, He is gathering in all of His elect, whom He foreknew from before the foundation of the world, in space and time. Every single one will be gathered into the ark of our day, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. All who enter Him by faith are sealed by God into that ark so that when the rains of judgment come, which in this case will be fire, you will be spared. That's the only reason He hasn't brought the final judgment yet. Praise the Lord. He knows exactly what's going on. His day and His time is fixed already in His mind. No one knows it. Only the Father knows it. And He will most certainly bring it to pass after all of His elect are gathered in. But the day of the Lord will come, verse 10, as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. That is, the sense of that word is 
the noise will be a crackling that deals with the effects of fire, great fire. The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Some people think of the elements here as the elements, the elemental elements, if you will, of the earth, that which the earth is comprised of. In this particular phrase, it may actually refer to the heavens, the elements of the heavens, the the heavenly bodies, that is the stars, the suns, the moons, the planets. All of these heavenly bodies will melt with fervent heat. Isaiah in chapter 34 of his writings in verse 4 says, that all of the host of heaven shall be dissolved, literally it will rot away. And the heavens, that is the skies, our atmosphere as we know it, and outer space as far as we can see it, shall be rolled up like a scroll, and all their host, that is the host of heavens, shall fall down or wither away as a leaf falls from the vine, and as a fruit that falls from the fig tree. So now think of the stars falling as Jesus describes this day of the Lord. This is what he's talking about. The heavens will literally rot away. The the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. Why? What is happening to cause this, uh, this, the elements to melt, the sound of fire well, remember that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming in His great glory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, He comes with His mighty angels in flaming fire. He is the cause, the reason why the heavens will be on fire and the earth will be on fire in that day. Revelation chapter 20 says that the earth and heavens will flee away before His face. They will not be able to stay in their current form when the presence of the Lord comes in His glory. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Or laid bare is another way of translating that. Everything that is of the flesh, in other words, if you want to think of this in categories, all of that's going to be burned up. Not that which is of the Spirit. But that which is of the flesh will be burned up. That is sinful men and all of the works that they do. All of the works that sinful men have constructed on this earth will all be burned up. There is going to be a great cleansing of the land, if you will. A a scorching. And there's different opinions as to whether the Lord is going to completely dissolve the earth and, and form a completely new earth or whether he's just going to scorch the entire land and start fresh in that way. In either way, the fact remains that this present creation is going away. So does it make any sense to try and recolonize ourselves on other moons or other planets and preserve life as long as we can in our strength? That's absolute folly. The Lord is going to destroy it all. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, literally melted or deconstructed from their elements, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? There is a great cleansing of the earth that is coming, loved ones. And every element of sin and all sinners and evil people will be utterly destroyed. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes the wrap-up, the final wrap-up, if you will. And he describes it in terms of God the Father putting everything under the feet of Jesus Christ the Son. Everything will be put in subjection to him. Even what he calls the last enemy, that is death, will be put under the Lord Jesus' feet. Not that death isn't under his feet now. He has already won the victory over death in his cross and in his resurrection. But he is allowing death to persist for a time that he might put it under his feet at the last day, finally and forever. And then death will be finally abolished And the question is, how should we be living in the light of this? Peter's answer is, in all holiness and 
in, in godliness. Matthew Henry said this, which I thought was really insightful. Oh, what will become of us if we set our affections on this earth and make it our portion? Seeing all these things shall be burnt up. Look out, therefore, and make sure of a happiness beyond this visible world, which must all be melted down. In other words, don't put down deep roots here, brothers and sisters. This is not our home. This instantiation, this earth as we know it, is going away. And a new earth is coming. And you might say, well, thinking back to the stretching of creation toward this day, why is creation looking forward to this absolute devastation, to this destruction upon itself? Now, I think that's a fair question. But as we remember, there's a parallel that Paul is drawing here between the created order and its enslavement to sin, its bondage, and the bondage that we are in because of sin. There is a relationship there. We've all been plunged into sin because of Adam's first sin. We have had our first taste of deliverance in the new birth, haven't we? We've been born again. We've been delivered from the penalty and are being delivered from the power of sin now. Creation is still waiting for its day when it will be finally delivered. But how is it that our deliverance has come about at least in part to this point? Is it not through a death? Our death with Christ, our union with Him means that we have both died with Him and been raised with Him. So we have died spiritually with Christ to the old man. Not through reforming ourselves and making ourselves better somehow. The Lord has had to put off the old man. In the same way, the old earth will have to be put off. It's going to have to die in order to be born again. We have died spiritually to be born again now, and one day we will, if the Lord doesn't come first while we're still alive, we will also die, but that is not something to fear. We look forward to that day. That is the day that ushers in the beginning of glory. Heaven, and then this day, the day of the Lord, a great glory. The new creation always comes through death first, but we don't need to fear that. That's exactly the Lord's plan he is going to dissolve this current order and creation. He is also going to do the same with these tents, these bodies of ours, before He gives us new ones. So, they look forward and we look forward. And Peter says it this way, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, even though we know that this great destruction is coming upon the earth and the heavens, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, first, the old heavens and the old earth are going to be destroyed. Secondly, a new heavens and a new earth are created. Revelation chapter 21, if you want to turn with me there. Revelation 21, we have a description of the new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth this is the Apostle John speaking in his vision. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. That's interesting. Perhaps that has to do with this great fire of the day of the Lord that will burn up all the seas. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. <clears throat> the Lord makes all things new. There will be no more death when he makes all things new. That means that there will be no more sin, right? 
Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The Lord is going to remove death. He also will remove sin and every vestige of sin. Look at uh, Revelation 21 down at verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, describing the glory of this new Jerusalem, which, by the way, is described as a bride, a person. The totality of the people of God coming down from the current heaven and filling this new earth. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and we know that the Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the nations shall walk in its light, or in His light, And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. In other words, access to the Lord is unrestricted. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter, enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the new earth and the new heavens, which you can think of as a a new atmosphere that exists above the new earth. God will come down with His saints from the current heaven, and He will dwell with His saints, all saints, in this new earth forever, where He Himself is the light and where there is no darkness at all. There is no evil person there. There is no sin there. There is no death there. There's no sorrow, no pain, no tears. There's only glory there and rejoicing in our God and Savior. Verse uh, chapter 22, verse 3, and there shall be no more curse. That is the curse of sin. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That's what we'll be doing there. We will be serving him day and day, because there's no night. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. We will be identified by Him with new names, names that He gives us. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It's a foretaste of the glory, right? It's hard to get our minds around all that will be revealed. We don't know what that is, but we know what He's given us so that we rejoice in it and we look forward to it. Let me give you another taste from Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And remember, when you read the prophets, they oftentimes conflate um, the horizons of of what is coming in the future. They may speak of an event as an event, which actually might be two events or three events or things that are spaced by considerable time. Uh, The prophets spoke the Word of God as the Word of God moved them, but they didn't always understand everything that came out of their mouth. Isaiah, when he prophesies in chapter 11, he speaks of something of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Look down at verse 6 with me. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bears shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, You don't have to be a zoologist to know that some of these animals don't naturally go together. They don't hang out together. They don't eat together or eat the same food. Lions are carnivorous. They don't eat what the ox or the cow eats. But in this new heavens and new earth, the Lord is describing that there is going to be a restoration of harmony as was first seen in the Garden of Eden. The animals did not attack each other in the Garden of Eden. They didn't eat each other and devour each other and destroy each other in the Garden of Eden. 
Mankind didn't eat and devour and destroy each other in the Garden of Eden either until after the fall. So the Lord is describing a fundamental change of nature which is going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. And he says in verse 8, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So all of those predatory creatures that now are harmful to us will not be harmful in that day. They will be in harmony with each other and with us. Turn to Isaiah 65. We get another description of the new heavens and the new earth. And starting in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Verse 20, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So you can see some similarities between Isaiah 65 and the description of the new glorious creation and the description given in Isaiah chapter 11. And the question that often comes up that confuses is, well, how is it, like in chapter 20 and following, that you have this description of a child that dies 100 years old? Is it possible for anyone to die in the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state? And the answer is no. But this is where it's helpful to understand that the prophets are speaking of the future and often conflating events. They're not understanding the separation of, of what is actually going to happen as redemptive history is unfolded. This glorious new creation can be, can be understood as being fulfilled in part now, in this gospel age in which we live. This is my conviction. This can be understood as the church age, this glorious new creation. Brothers and sisters, do we not have a new relationship with heaven and earth now that we are new creations in Christ? Do we not have access to God as our Father and call upon Him as such, whereas before He was our enemy? Heaven has now been opened. We have a relationship with the Lord God Almighty we didn't have before. We have, from our perspective, a new heaven and a new earth. We have a new relationship with each other. People groups who formerly were at odds with each other and fighting with each other and devouring each other, that middle wall of partition has been broken down because Jesus Christ is our peace. He's made peace by the blood of His cross. So now people from different tribes and ethnicities and with different backgrounds can love each other in Christ. There is a near-term fulfillment of this promise in part right now in this gospel age in which we live. And that's how it is that if a child or an infant dies, the child shall die 100 years old. In other words, even if the child dies in infancy here, it's immediately in the presence of the Lord and has everlasting life. And the sinner who dies 100 years old, which is a good old age on this earth since the days of man now are given at 70, he is going to be accursed because he misses out on eternal life, even if he has a long life on this earth. 
But you can see that there is the ultimate fulfillment of this, Isaiah 65, that happens in this new heavens and new earth where there will be no death, where wolf and lamb will feed together. Lion shall eat straw like ox. Nature will be changed to be glorious and harmonious once again. And it's this new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 66, verse 22, which the Lord says will remain before Him, in other words, forever. For as the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall remain before Me, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before Me, says the Lord. In other words, there will be constant worship from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. Not only once a week will Israel or the church or the people of God come together to worship the Lord, but the gates will be flung wide open so that we always will be in the presence of the Lord to worship Him day and day. Isn't that great news? That is this new heavens and new earth that creation is so much longing for. Now, we got to get to these groans. The first groan is the groan of creation. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 8, and let's look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Now, we're still talking about, Paul's still talking about this non-rational creation. It groans, and the groan is a word that's a compound word in the Greek. It means to sigh together with. To sigh together. In other words, all of creation is sighing or groaning or moaning together with one voice. And there are three senses in which groaning is used in the Scriptures. There's three senses. The first is it expresses grief or can express grief and sorrow. Listen to Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you. This is speaking of order in the church. And be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with groaning, grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. So the first way that this word groaning is used in Scripture is a a grief, a sorrow. The second way it's used, and these there's three ways, they're all important as we think about these concepts. The second is as an expression of displeasure, an expression of displeasure or irritation. James chapter 5 verse 9, do not grumble or groan against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Don't be irritable with one another. Don't grumble or complain against one another. The third sense is a longing or a great desire. A desire for relief. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, For in this we groan, that is, in our present habitation, our, our tent, this body that we live in now, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. There's a yearning there. There's a, a strong desire to be out of this body, but to be in our new body. There's a groaning for that. And the creation is doing some of all of this. It grieves the current state of sin. It it is displeased with this current state of sin. It earnestly desires to get out of this condition, and that's why he says it labors with birth pains. It's like a woman in labor trying to get relief with the birth of a child, but in the moment, it is suffering the pains of childbirth. And these are both in the present active. In other words, all creation is groaning and in labor constantly. It has been since the fall. That rhythm of sighing and groaning and laboring for deliverance has been with us. And creation is not able to deliver itself. It's not able to give birth to this new creation we just read about. It's still in bondage. It's suffering under the curse of sin, the sin of Adam. And so that's why you have these kinds of expressions in Jeremiah 12, verse 4. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there. 
because they said he will not see our final end. The wicked don't believe in that final day of the Lord. They're scoffing. Where is his appearing? When will he come? He's never judged the earth. That's exactly their position, and the land is mourning underneath the weight of that, um, that evil, that sin. And so the creation desires earnestly to give birth. And, you know, there, there may be an interesting example of this that we see all the time. In fact, every year there's a reminder of this. This was something that Martin Lloyd-Jones brought to my attention and I wanted to share with you. And he couched this as a speculation of his, but I think he's on the money. Listen to this quote about um, this phenomenon of creation desiring to deliver itself but not able to. He says, I wonder whether the phenomenon of the spirit, I'm sorry, the phenomenon of the spring, springtime, supplies us with a part answer. Nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of all that is so true of winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pangs year by year. But unfortunately, it does not succeed, for spring leads only to summer, summer leads to autumn, and autumn to winter. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it, but it can't do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain together until now. It has been doing so for a very long time. The apostle wrote this epistle nearly 2,000 years ago, but nature still repeats the effort annually. I think that's an interesting insight. Every year when we see spring give way to summer and autumn and winter, we have a picture of the principle, the, the ruin, the, the, the corruption, the decay that God has um, cursed this earth with. Um, and creation tries to come around and, and recreate itself in the springtime, and it looks glorious for a time, right? But it doesn't stay, right? The, the fall comes again. I mean, we're enjoying the fall season. We, we recognize the seasons as glorious, don't we? But we need to remember this. They're also a reminder of the corruption of this present age in which we live and of God's faithfulness. He doesn't leave us in wintertime, does He? He brings about the springtime again. He doesn't leave us in the night, but He brings the morning always after the evening. That those are pointers to His faithfulness that He will ultimately redeem you and this present creation. So those are the groans that creation experiences, and thank God He will answer them. Secondly, and this is the second point for today, we have the groans of the sons of God. Look at verse 23. Not only that, in other words, not only what creation is groaning and laboring about, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Paul here is continuing this comparison. We also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also have a kind of groaning in ourselves. And what does he mean, first of all, by we who have the first fruits of the Spirit? We know from Romans chapter 8 that the, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us, right? He's taken up residence in us. Paul here calls the Spirit the first fruits which in the Greek is another compound word that means from the beginning. That's what first fruits are. This is a, a hearkening back to the feasts in Israel. In Israel, there were three major feasts that the males were required to attend in Jerusalem. So they had to travel from wherever they lived in the broader Israel area to Jerusalem for these three required feasts. The first feast was the feast of Passover or the feast of unleavened bread. Fifty days after the feast of the Passover, you have the feast that's called first fruits. First fruits. And the first fruits were, just like they sound, a, an ingathering of the first harvest of a crop, whether it's fruit off of a tree or a, a wheat crop or a barley crop. They would bring in this first fruits 
and it was a sign to the people of the full harvest that was to come in the fall. Now, when we think about our Lord Jesus Christ when He was crucified as the spotless Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, He was crucified on the Passover. Then, three days later, we know that He was raised from the dead, and the beginning of the, uh, the account of the Acts of the Apostles describes that Jesus showed Himself for 40 days to His disciples with inscrutable proofs or with uh, definite proofs that He was raised from the dead, convincing proofs. Then He ascended to heaven. And a few short days later, so now 50 days from the Passover when He was crucified, the Feast of first fruits happened. We call that in the Scripture Pentecost. That's the 50 days after the Passover. That's what Pentecost means from the Greek, peninda, 50. What happened on Pentecost? But that the glorified Jesus Christ poured out His Holy Spirit from heaven upon His disciples, and He gave them the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, He gave them their first installment of salvation. The promise or the guarantee of salvation, as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, you who have believed were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee. That's this word, first fruits, down payment. You could also call it the engagement ring of the wedding of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is still to come. You have received this pledge from God that He has saved you and will ultimately save you. That's the idea of the first fruits. So you've been given a divine foretaste of glory to come. You have the Spirit of God. That is your evidence that you have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. So the Holy Spirit gives us this foretaste of glory to come. And Paul says, we who have this, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Seems like he's being a little redundant, but he is reinforcing that this groaning is something that only the sons of God experience. This groaning is something that the world does not know anything of in the fullness in which Scripture means it. The grieving sense, the anger or the irritable sense, and also the longing sense. I was really helped by um, a Scottish Presbyterian Puritan named Ebenezer Erskine, E-R-S-K-I-N-E, who really describes... um, a lot of this groaning of believers, and um, I think I've got a lot more here than we can cover for today, so we'll have to truncate this and then pick up where we leave off next week. But let me just start to give a sense for some of this groaning that we are experiencing now. First of all, he says, this is Erskine, he says that we are burdened with the weakness of our flesh because of sin. All of these um, groans have to do with sin. This first one is a burden because of the weakness of our own flesh, right? And we know something of that. In fact, everyone knows something about that. We groan at times because we are physically weak. Sometimes that's intermittent. Sometimes for some people that's more chronic. Their physical weakness is always with them. They may struggle with energy, with memory, with different kinds of ailments, health issues, emotional issues. And Erskine says, as Christians, how often do we desire to mount up? How often do our souls desire to mount up with wings like an eagle, and yet we just find that we're anchored down by the flesh? So there is a groaning that happens just because of this condition we're in in the body. But then this is where the Christian experiences a groaning that the world knows nothing about. He says, we're burdened with the weight of our own sin. The weight of our sin is like a burden on our backs, I mean, how much does our own corruption still dwell in our flesh, brothers and sisters? Are we aware of that? When we first came to faith, we saw the large, obvious sins in our lives, right? And the Lord convicted us of those. We we recognized them, we repented of them, and we are, are still aware of those large issues as we thought of them. But as we mature, the Lord exposes 
um, more of the what we used to consider smaller sins in our lives, right? The attitudes of the heart, things like pride and anger and covetousness and idolatry, other loves that coexist in our hearts alongside the love for the Lord. And the Lord's dialing up our sensitivity to those things, right? I mean, it's interesting, it's, it's paradoxical really that as Christians mature in the faith, that they become more sensitive to their sin and they feel worse than earlier in their Christian walk. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, I think, gave voice to this really well in Romans 7 when he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That was spoken by the mature man, the Apostle Paul, um, who saw himself as the chief of sinners at that point in his life. David, we saw um, in, in uh, Psalm 38 this morning in our corporate reading, he gives voice to this also. Um, where he just feels this burden on his back. He says um, in Psalm 38, verse 4, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. This is the mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. This is the mourning that... The Lord Jesus Christ talks about in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning over what? Over their sin. They feel the weight of sin, like a great burden on the back, and it causes them to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And it's the Lord himself who brings this pain, this, this awareness that we are under the burden of our own sin. It's the Lord, he says, he says, your arrows pierce me deeply. Your hand presses me down. It's like the Lord is a, a hunter. And he strikes his arrows in us with skill to bring about an awareness of our sin and the pain that is associated with our sin so that we would confess our sin to him and, and turn to him in repentance and faith. That is the pattern for the Christian, for the believer only. And David is a really good example of that. Paul, as we saw, um, and all of us know something of this as well. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been engaged in battle, a daily battle against your own flesh, against the world and the devil. And that will continue until this day of the Lord when he finally frees us from our sin. So we are burdened with the weight of our own sin. We are becoming more aware of that, and we groan because of it. We also are burdened with the sin that we see in the world. Proverbs 29, 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. This groan, it takes various forms, right? It, it can be... The psalmist, like in 119, verse 136, he says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men don't keep your law. He's in grief and sadness in mourning. Again, in Psalm 119, verse 53, Indignation, that is anger and frustration, has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And in verse 158 of that same chapter, we have the disgust. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Peter describes Lot. Remember Lot dwelling in Sodom and Gomorrah? Or Sodom? The Lord says that, uh, Peter says, the Lord delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed, that is vexed, uh, constantly irritated by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And then it says, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. He was harassed from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Can we relate to that? Yeah. We are burdened because of the sin that we see in the world. And then, maybe we'll just stop with this. Maybe one more burden that is important as well. We are burdened with the sin we see in the church, aren't we? We are burdened with the sin that we see directed against the Lord and against His people. Um, in Nehemiah, in his book, if you read the last chapter, chapter 13, you'll get a description of Nehemiah's burden that he felt for 
the house of God and for the disorder that he found going on when he came back from Persia uh, to see the people of God behaving so badly. Um, Eliashib, who was the high priest in that day, had authority over the storerooms of the temple. He gave one of these storerooms to a wicked man named Tobiah, who was an enemy of the people of God and who was really one of the ringleaders conspiring against Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the entire city. He hated God and the people of God, um, felt threatened by their rebuilding. And when Nehemiah heard that Eliashib had formed this unholy alliance, um, giving Tobiah this room inside of the temple of God, he was groaning. And he didn't just groan, but he took action. Listen to, just listen to this. Nehemiah 13 Seven, Nehemiah says, And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw out all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something that happened in the New Testament when a certain somebody came into the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers because zeal for your house has consumed me? That was the Lord Jesus Christ who did that. And Nehemiah was a wonderful type of Christ in that instance. He was not only grieved and groaning, but he took action. He cleansed the Lord's house. He set things back in order so that the tithes were taken in properly once more, so that the Sabbath was observed once again, and the merchants were kept out who were constantly at the gates waiting for the Sabbath to be over so that they could just come in and sell their wares. He, he dealt with those who had given themselves to foreign marriages, to intermarriage with pagans. And he even plucked out some of their beards and cut off their hair. He was... He was intense with them because of the zeal of the Lord was burning within him. So, church, is that happening with us today as well? I mean, do we feel that groaning, that zeal for the Lord, for His righteousness? Not that we're going to go around hurting people. That's not the point. He was doing that as an illustration in those days of the judgment of God that was upon them, and that would be much worse if they didn't repent. But what, a, what unholy alliances are we making today within the temple, the sanctuary, which is not these four walls as much as it is in the heart? What unholy alliances are we allowing there that really we should groan over and, and take action to cleanse by God's grace? The people of God groan in this present condition. Um, the world, they don't know anything about that. They groan, incidentally, when they're hindered from doing what they want to do, right? From pursuing their own lust and their own pleasures and their own self-worship. But the child of God, he feels the, the pain that the Lord feels. And increasingly, as we grow in grace regarding sin, and he is groaning under that. Well, lots more to come next week, Lord willing, as we keep going through this, but I want to encourage each of you, brothers and sisters, do you know something of this groaning in yourselves this morning? Are you groaning for deliverance from sin, right? Is that the real issue that's driving you? Or are you looking to be delivered from inconveniences and other things that are to do with this present age in which we live? Let's not store up our treasures here, right? We're rust and moth can destroy. Our treasure is in heaven. That's where our residence is. That's where our home is. And by the way, <laughs> that's not our eternal state. That, it might sound a little provocative, but heaven is not the final destination in its current form. Heaven is a holding place. It's an intermediate state where the souls of all the saints are dwelling with the angels, with the Lord, but it's this new heaven and new earth that are going to be created and come down to meet. That is where the righteous will dwell forever on this new earth, in the light of the Lord. That's the eternal state. That's what we are to look forward to. And it's as we get our minds around this more and more, and we are looking forward to that, that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. 
that our priorities will be in the right order. The scale will be tilted correctly in our minds and in our affections, right? That's why this is here. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise. You are all wise and glorious. Thank you that you, re- you have revealed your glory to us, not only in the created order, but really savingly, Lord, that you have revealed your arm, your power, your salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not only be forgiven our sins, but would be enabled to walk in your way, to be vessels useful for you as we show forth the glory of God to this world, and that brings you glory. Holiness is what brings you glory. And Lord, what a wonderful foretaste you've given us in the Holy Spirit as you are developing the fruit of the Spirit in each of us, changing us from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of our God as we set our minds and our gaze upon you, knowing that one day we will be like your Son. We will see Him as He is, for we shall be like Him. We long for that day, Lord. We're grieved by our own sin. We're grieved by the sin that we see in this world. We're grieved by the sin that we see in the church when leaders are not doing their jobs or perhaps don't even know you and are wicked men altogether. Father, would you please um, save your people. Gather in your elect from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. Lord, gather them in, every one of them, as we know you will before you rain down your final day of the Lord. And thank you that it will be a great day of deliverance for us. We look forward to that, Lord. Help us today and this week to walk in the light of these truths, trusting in you, resting in you, setting our hope and our affection on you and not on the things of this earth. You are our trust and our our confidence. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.